Hello, welcome back to IVFU. Today we have a very special two-part episode, talking with my dear friends Chris and Jesse, who are a gay married couple with two kids who endured the hardest journey imaginable as they traveled the road of foster to adopt in building their incredible family. I should say in advance, there are some very painful moments in this conversation, so make sure it's the right day and the right moment for you to listen. But if you do, you'll also feel a love and gratitude so strong. I think it'll carry you for a long time. I'm in love with you. You. Jesse and I, I know him enough to know that he doesn't mind my saying this. We're both sober. Mm -hmm. We met at an AA meeting and um, we exchanged numbers. And on our first date, Jesse asked me how I felt about marriage and kids. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember at the time thinking, wow, like, is this guy serious? It's our first date. But I also knew he was a real quality guy. And I knew that he was asking because that was important to him. All right. Well, you know, Chris is being very romantical and I love that version that he's giving. So (laughs) I will like to interject because I, I really do believe in keeping it real. Yes. One, I was in AA. This guy comes in and he had some, he had a swagger. Like I don't even, I can't even explain. <laughs> and I, I went back to that same meeting because I'm like, I wonder if that guy that I am convinced has been in prison, at least for a while, <laughs> yeah. will be there. He had I a had bit of like whole, an Iggy Pock look he did, about Totally. Him. Yeah, yeah, totally. And like, um, he's a New Yorker, you know, he's got that sort of, he works out with weights and he holds himself like that. It's just whole... I don't know. I guess I had a little bit of like a Sopranos fantasy or something. <laughs> now, I had no intention of dating him, just so yeah. we know. Like I, my, for me, it was very um, animal, Lustful. very like, very much so. Right. And I had a whole idea in my head. But as we were texting to figure out when to hook up, we just started, kind of started to connect. And um, I got pretty soon, I'm like, oh, this is actually kind of great. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you guys are here. I want to say, um, you know, here's what I know right off the bat. You guys are married Mm -hmm. and you have two kids via the process known as FOST Adopt, which is a shortened version of Foster to Adopt. Um, And one big question I want to get to is why you chose that. Yeah. So I was 31 going on 32 when I met Chris, but I did know that I wanted to have a family and I wanted a marriage and Mm -hmm. that I would have liked to have started that process sooner than later. It's important to note too, can I say one thing here that Uh it was a pretty historic time too in that Prop 8 was very much in effect. And Jesse and I had been dating a year when we got engaged. And while we were engaged, gay marriage became legal. Same-sex unions became legal. And that was really exciting. It was exciting for us. It was exciting for everybody who attended our wedding because it was many people's first legal gay wedding. And where was your wedding? Was it in California? Okay, so... Let me tell you about my wedding. You can see we're not going to fit this into an hour, but yes, go on. <laughs> I'm but, moving uh, it along. I'm going to move I this will, along. Uh, <laughs> I will say I was, I, I won't say I was a bridezilla, but I definitely made it happen. <laughs> yes. Um, one cool thing, because we talked about Prop 8, was when the officiant, who was my friend, uh, said, by the power best in me by the state of California, 
everyone stood up and a standing ovation, huge cheers, uh, people yeah. crying. Um, you know, I am a minister. Yeah. And one of the things that I created in Los Angeles was a spiritual community for LGBTQ plus people. And that sense of community, that the, the role of community in our life. Um, and I think it's a common thread in, in the LGBTQ plus experience, because we talk a lot about our chosen family and mm-hmm. the, the power and utilizing the power of community. And so we had our flowers taken care of as a gift, cake taken care of as gift, photography taken care of as a gift. Wow. Um, uh, it was really the, beautiful. It was just this beautiful, like coming together of our community. And of course, as we get further down to your story, that comes into a huge uh, piece of it, the community surrounding you guys and holding you guys up through through the celebrations and the very hard times. Yes. Um, and so I just want to say very quickly, so Jesse, you are a chef, you are a pastor. Um, Chris, what are, I just want to talk a little bit about money because mm-hmm. there is this myth that, you know, we see characters on TV where these two gay men and they have children <laughs> and they are fabulously wealthy, you know, whether it's modern family. I mean, they're not wealthy in modern family, but, you know, the guy's a lawyer and there's always this myth. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, you guys are not rich. You have made this family work. You have figured out mm-hmm. ways to do this. Um, so, I, you know, I want to talk about, Chris, first of all, what you do for a living. Absolutely. You know, I worked at Factors Famous Deli. I worked there as a server. I worked there for a long time. My mom had a submarine sandwich shop growing up. Uh, It's been very good for me. So a a bulk of our income came from my job there. I would work from 6.30 in the morning until 2.30 in the afternoon. And then I've, I've made money as a storyteller. I've made money as a writer. I've made money as an actor. I've made money as a teacher. So I do a lot of stuff, but yeah, no, you're right. We're not lawyers and it doesn't look like modern family on TV. And a large reason that we chose the foster to adopt route was because of money. Also, there's a stipend. They help with the child. You get some money to help you with the child. They give you health insurance until the children are 18 years old. Like there's many ways that these kids are taken care of. And I thought, wow, like this is amazing. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. But, but also it's really important to say, like, I really, truly, and I think Jesse also felt the same way. Um, even if there had been a lot of money, I really wanted to always help a pre-existing kid. It, yeah. Well, if I, if I can interject too, you know, um, money was a huge issue because Chris and I met with adoption lawyers. They were breaking it all down. And they're like, typically what it looks like is a between fifteen to $30,000 investment. Yeah. And it's a, the, the mother does not there's no law that says the mother has to give you the child, you know, right. as, as there should be no law that says a mother has to give you the child because you, you can't buy babies, you right. know? And so I was working in nonprofit at the time. So money was a huge consideration. I'm like, I'm yeah. not going to throw down 30 grand, like, you know, like, and mm-hmm. like Chris, I just always assumed I would adopt as well. And the numbers of kids that need home in Los Angeles County alone are staggering. Over 30,000 kids in the foster system in LA County alone. So um, it just felt like, you know, the path was being shown. We're very aware that the route we took, it's not for everyone. It's really not. You, You have to surrender your idea of the outcome. And we didn't know that. We very much were under the impression, okay, we're going to 
go through these steps and do this, this, and this, and then we're going to be able to adopt this child. And we weren't aware of the reality of like, well, maybe you'll get to adopt this child, but a lot of things have to not happen or happen first. Right. Yeah. So I do, I want to talk about Caden. I I just Mm -hmm. want to get some of the details of his story. So, well, yeah. So, so Caden, uh, the, the truth is I didn't know foster to adopt was a thing. I had no idea that even existed until, um, one of my clients that was in a spin class of mine came up to me and told me about it because she was working with Vista Del Mar and then she became our first social worker. And, and Vista Del Mar is the agency that you guys went through, yes. correct? And so one of my desires was to have an infant. I just really, really yearned to have the entire lifespan experience. You know, mm. um, that was important to me. But they said that having an infant made available for adoption through this process is very rare. And mm-hmm. so to, to increase your odds of getting an infant through the foster to adopt process, you sign up for something called emergency placement. Because mm-hmm. if an infant is going to be put into the foster to adopt program or the foster program, um, something, some shit had to have gone down. You know, something mm-hmm. had to have gone down that wasn't good to remove an infant from the parents, the biological right. parents. And in order to place that child, they have to have someone available and ready 24-7. And so when you sign up for emergency placement, what that means and what happened is you get a call at noon and there's a baby in your house at 3 p.m. <gasps> wow. You know, and so it's like, <sighs> it's an all hands on deck experience. Right. Wow. So you were placed on that list. You got a Kaden, call. Yeah. I was at work. Jesse texted me. He told me that there was a two day old baby boy at a hospital in Lancaster. He had been exposed to crystal meth. He was mm-hmm. black. His mom, this was her seventh child and her, she was 27. This was her seventh child and her other children were in foster homes. So when Jesse texted me, he, he gave me that information. Um, I was scared. I was elated. Uh, uh, the doctor said that he appeared to be healthy. Um, and um, we so decided to say, say yes. So when they say exposed, it's not necessarily that it was in his bloodstream. It's that his his biological mother- <laughs> She had used yes. while she was pregnant. Well, she, she tested, she used, she tested she had, positive. It was in her system when she gave birth. So, um, yeah. And, you know, in this as well, I should say, we learned a lot about what that meant and that crystal meth exposure isn't the end of the world. Mm -hmm. You know, it really isn't. But I mean, it's not preferable, obviously, but it's not the end of the world either. So those were those were the facts we were given. We decided to say yes. This was at like 12 noon. I came home like two hours later, we were at the target on La Cienega, getting a car seat for the car. Wow. We, we raced to Lancaster. Je- we pulled into a gas station, two exits away from the hospital. Jesse installed the car seat underneath the fluorescent lights of the gas station. Yeah. Uh, we had bought necessities, diapers for, for a newborn, formula, everything that we could think of to grab at the target. And then a social worker met us in the parking lot. And, uh, brought us inside and introduced us to Caden. And 
Um, he was tiny. He was beautiful from the moment we looked at him. We just were like, oh my God, we, we fell in love with him. I just remember it was all women in the emergency room. Everybody was watching Jesse and I, I I'll speak for myself. I was very nervous. Um, the mother at this point, uh, had gone, I don't know where she was. I think she had gone home. Um, he was two days old and he was leaving the hospital. He, we were, we were taking him out of the hospital. Um, there were a bunch of nurses and, uh, uh, women doctors. It was just women. And I just remember making an announcement and saying like, okay, ladies, you know, tell us anything. What, what, what do I need to know? Like right now, like shoot it out. And I remember somebody, a woman said to me, um, well, you don't need to hold him like he's glass. He's not going to break. And I remember that was kind of like a great moment for me. I was like, okay, I, she can tell I'm afraid I'm nervous. I'm, I'm handling him very like fragile. And that was it. I mean, we walked out of the hospital with, uh, wow. with this boy and we brought him home. It was, it was the, the wind was whipping. I remember it was like Shakespearean outside. Of it. Yeah. We put him in the car. He was tiny. He, we brought him home. We set up a room for him to sleep in. And it just started right then and there. And like, what were the, what were the emotions like that first day was, how did you feel in that moment? Can you remember? I was very nervous driving to the hospital. I, I remember saying to Jesse, like about the car seat, I was like, do you know what you're doing? Like, this is a really big deal. Like if we put this in wrong and something happens, like he could, he could get hurt, you know? Uh, right. I, I remember just, just being as I imagine every single expectant father feels, I was a nervous wreck. Yeah. But then I saw the baby, I saw Caden and I was like, oh, okay. Like, it's all about him. Wow. It's just about taking care of him. And he was so small and I knew something. And I always think this, I remember going to the car and I remember looking at Jesse and I remember thinking, one thing I know about us is that we are capable. I like, like whatever is going to happen, he's in capable hands. I really mm-hmm. felt that. And I, and I, and I, that moved me like that, that we were all together and, uh, that from all these different backgrounds and places. And here we were in this parking lot and he was coming home with us. It, it moved me. It still moves me. And Jesse, what about you in that moment that day? Uh, I was just excited. Um, I was just really, really excited. Yeah. And just very happy. And I've learned as you do with your partners, like I had, I knew I had to give Chris a moment. I had to give Chris a space to be mm-hmm. terrified and nervous and, you know, walk his paces and do all of that. But uh, I was just really excited. But the other thing, and, and just to interject too, is that it was a real blender of a situation to be in on Liquify because we knew we wanted to be fathers and we knew we wanted to adopt a child. We also knew we had real feeling and compassion and empathy for his mother. We also wanted ultimately and only what was best for the child, not for us and not for his mom. We were more, and, and that was what we really had to focus on at all times. Be the best parent to this kid that we can be. And in our best moments, and Jesse was better at it than I was, we had to let go of all outcome because what we didn't understand is that from the moment we we got the call, we brought Caden, we brought him home, we fell in love with him instantly. And from day one, you know, it was it was always about with social workers and DCFS, let's find a family member who can take this child. So we were always, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as we were raising him, it was always like, okay, 
we're going to check out this person and we're going to check out this person. And I didn't realize that that was going to happen to the degree that it did. And it felt personal to me. I was like, oh my God, they don't want this baby with us. And I understand now I see it so clearly because of course you're going to want to check out every single family member that's available. Of course you want to go down all those avenues first. I just, that's something that I didn't quite understand going in. And so, you know, I was always nail biting. Yeah. So rather than helping you, helping create almost like an emotional buffer for you or like managing expectations for you, it feels like, sounds like it was sort of torture kind of knowing that they were constantly looking for somebody else to give this child. We had an amazing support group. Like Vista Del Mar was always helping us all the way through it. They understood. Everybody really understood. They're like, yeah, this is hard. Let's just see how this pans out. Let's just see how this pans out. We had to just turn that over every single day to, you know, our belief system. and, And some days it was better. I was better at it than others, but it was, it wasn't torturous, but it was, it was very hard the not knowing. Yeah the being and the not knowing. Um, and, and luckily we had this amazing baby to focus on because when you're doing that, then that becomes your main focus. But it was always there underneath that question of what's going to happen next. Is this person, is this DNA match going to match? And then this person, you know, there was all kinds of (laughs) things. Yeah. But Jesse, you talk. Well, I definitely realized, um, I remember one day specifically, I'm actually sitting next to the window I was looking at right now. Um, I was just, I was holding Kaden and I was just in this fear fantasy of what could happen. And I realized, I was like, you need to stop. I was like, you need to, in this moment, you need to surrender all outcomes because what you're doing is you're wasting moments where you could be with this kid and loving this kid mm. and worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow. You have to really live in the moment and appreciate what you have. Absolutely. And as a parent and going through what we've gone through as parents, that was sort of a turning point in my life as a parent because the truth is you never know what's going to happen. Right. No. Right. So, and so you really do have to see the the value of the present moment. And I could imagine it's very hard too. And then I, I do want to get very more specifically into the story, but I, I would imagine, you know, you have to really, you have to give yourself to this child, but you also have to protect yourself. You have to sort of hold on to yourself and give yourself at the same time. That's well, a myth. I mean, people always, <laughs> ask, people, people used to ask me that question. They would say that to me. And the reality was, I fell in love with this baby the moment I saw it. And, and I dare anyone not to, you know, like, like it's, that's something that like, Oh, uh, you can put some kind of border around your heart and only let this kid in so much. And that didn't happen. I, yeah. I had, I have, I had no experience with that. I, I was unable to do that. If there was a barometer for that, I definitely failed. Yeah. I just loved him. And, yeah. and, and what I had to do was just constantly remind myself, like, there's something bigger than me that is taking care of this child. And if it, if, if this child has to go somewhere other than here in our home, I, I have to know that that's what's best for him. Right. And that's what I, in my finer moments, strive to be in because I knew I was already too in love with him and wanting to be his dad. Right. I couldn't protect myself. From right. I, I should say this. One thing that I wish someone would have told me is that you have to, you really do 
have to put adoption on the shelf. You have to do it. You have to put adoption on the shelf until Mm. adoption is on the table because um, you'll drive yourself insane if you don't. Right. They are laser focused Mm -hmm. on reunification. And so what that means is their main number one priority is to get children back with the parents, if at all possible, biological parents, if possible, or with a biological family member. Now, I think that the very famous case Mm. of Gabriel Hernandez, which was on Netflix, actually changed that game a bit because there's, like I said, so many cases, so much paperwork, so much stuff that children are getting reunified with family members that are dangerous, that are not safe. And so that's the part that didn't make sense to me that really made it be like, why, why is there such a emphasis on reunification when, um, oftentimes, you know, a year later, the kids are back in foster care because there was a relapse, there was abuse, there was something else again, but they bring in the whole process again, as if it never happened. So that's the things that like, I'm like, my logical mind, this doesn't make any sense. And the lawyers pretty much said, you're right, it doesn't make sense, but it's the law. And every procedure, every um, everything that we go through, every paper you have to sign is because at some point in the past, somebody either sued, somebody was taken advantage mm. of, somebody's rights were trampled on. Right. And that's why we do this now for everybody. So it's a it's it's an arduous yep. but necessary. process. <laughs> right. We have to back up because the storyteller in me right. is we're already no exactly. Well, I, I'm going to let yeah. you ask the question to take because I, I well, yeah. Yes. So you're kind of weighing the needs of the child, the needs of the situation. Yeah, you know, we brought Caden home, and at some point, not that far, I think maybe two weeks into him being home, you know, we knew that we had to have court appointed visits with his mom. Yeah. So Jesse and I, we brought him to Lancaster, and we had, and we we brought him to her and we had visits. What, and like, what are the emotions when you see her for the first time, when she sees him for the first time? Was she sober we, when you saw her? Um, I, 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 let me, let me just share the story. Cause it's kind of funny. We were sitting in a room waiting for her and this hardcore looking woman starts walking towards the building. And I mean, she looked rough. You can see out the window. <laughs> and, and where and I what was building like, are you in? You're at the agency or you're at- Yeah, a- we're at DCFS. You, I gotcha. It was all, uh, everything happened at the DCFS building in Lancaster. Mm-hmm. But I saw this woman walking through the parking lot and I was like, holy shit. If that's this child's mother, I don't even know what we're going to do. <laughs> and it wasn't. And and who, who walked in was actually this really beautiful, tall- um, well put together woman, young woman. And we were like, well, we weren't expecting that. Right. And, um, and she came and she took the baby and she was completely mother mothering and beautiful and nurturing to this baby. And we were just like, well, this wasn't what we were expecting at all. And, um, also to interject another element of that, Chris and I mentioned, we were both in AA I'm a minister. I, I do a lot of work with homeless, with people that are in really challenging situations, with drug addicts, you know. So I understand and have compassion for that experience. And we didn't know what would unfold with it. But as we mentioned before, drugs were part of the story mm-hmm. and drugs became a part of the story again. Mm-hmm. And I think in the eight and a half months that we had. Caden, the mother was able to show up to five visits. Out of how many were expected? Weekly. 
So oh. Oh, yeah, wow. so she was only able to show up for five, wow. and eventually she disappeared. Yeah. And um, we knew that she was in her using again. Um, we were going to the court dates. The mother did not show up to any of the court hearings. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were sort of, since the child uh, was is under the age of three, it sort of gets fast-tracked because they want stability as soon as possible for the child. The one thing that was looming was the father because the man that she named on the birth certificate said he was not the father. Oh, And so we got to the point with the court process that uh, the only thing needed to begin, officially begin the adoption process was the DNA test to prove that he was not the dad. And so he had taken that. And uh, it was while we were awaiting the results of his test that Caden got sick. Mm-hmm. Hold on. Wait, I want to say one thing before you get to that point. You're 100% right about everything. I just want to go back and say that first visit, just because I don't know who's listening to this and I don't know if people are thinking about doing this route of, of adoption. And mm-hmm. like I said before, we checked a box that said open to all races. And the child that we brought into our home, his mom was black and he was black and we brought him into our home. And when we were driving- and you guys are we, white. I'm just going to say and, that. And yes, of audio. course. We're, yeah, definitely. We're white, we're gay. One of the things that the social worker, as Jesse addressed, one of the things the social worker told us was, she was not happy that her child was with two gay guys. And driving over there, like, that's something I was really thinking about. I was like, mm-hmm. okay, like, and, and I was also thinking, like, it wasn't an issue to us. Like, I was thinking, like, I remember when I said yes to Jesse, my issue was, I had no issue about race at all. But I thought, gosh, like, I hope that he wants us as right. his dads. And, and when we were driving over there, and I thought, okay, so she thinks this of us and this has got to be addressed. And so we had a lot of things here, you know, right. homophobia, race issues, questions. And so we walked into the room and we did address that right away. Like I said to her, like, look, I know you have a problem with the fact that we're gay. Can we talk about that? And she didn't say a word. Wow. And we just, we talked about it. I said to her, look, my husband's a minister. We're married. You know, we're not going on uh, gay cruises. You know, <laughs> right. we're, we're like, you know, like we're, we're, we're in love. We gave a lot of thought to this. We took classes. This we deleted grinder we from our phone. Yeah. No, like, <laughs> but I, but I really, right. true though, true. Like I wanted right. her to know, like we were, we respect you. And we, the other thing was we told her, which was true. We were like, we don't know what it has been like to be you. We have no we really wanted to have like respect her. Like she was his mother. Like we really wanted that, you know? Yeah. And we didn't in any way want to disrespect her. And just address that right off the bat. And what, what sort of uh, unfolded was by the end of the session, we were all hugging. She was hugging us. We were just a really kind of lovely little unit. And then as Jesse said, the thing we never expected to happen happened, which was that he got sick. Right. And he was how old at this point? At that point, he was six months old. Okay. At six months. It looked like oh. a stomach virus. It looked, so, that's well, what it looked was like. Was he throwing well, up? No. Or? Well, let, let me just say, because I, want, I, I really feel like this is important information. What happened was he got a rash on his stomach, almost from head to toe. It started on his stomach. It went from almost head to toe. He had a temperature. So I called his pediatrician. She goes, get him to the emergency room. Uh, he had a fever. The fever was there for about four days. Wow. Um, 
And so they kept him in the pediatric ward of Cedar sinai Hospital, which is a fabulous hospital, um, to monitor him. And they thought that he had a virus. That was the first time. So after the fever went down, the rash went away, they sent him back home. A month and a half later, he gets a stomach virus. He was, thro- he was throwing up. He did not want to eat. So we took him to the doctor, urgent care. She looked at him. She goes, I could send you to the emergency room, but I don't think we need to. I think he has a virus. He goes, so just keep an eye on him, monitor him, and try to get as many liquids in him as possible. And if he doesn't get better, come back. So uh, a day and a half later, he wasn't eating. He, He had a little bit of a temperature. So I took him to the emergency room. And while I was at the emergency room, it was the triage nurse looked at him took his vitals, you know, did the stuff. And she's like, honey, this baby just wants his daddy's. Like this, this is, he goes, like, just take him home. If he's not eating, put a little of the baby food on his pacifier. He'll eat it that way. Make sure he's uh, got liquids in him. He's going to be okay. And I was like, okay. So I went home. A day and a half later, he still wasn't eating. He was just so upset, just crying. And that time, that day that we took him in to the emergency room, the third time, he started to look like he was a little dehydrated. Mm. And that was concerning for the nurses. So they had him, they um, found a bed for him. And it was at the point in the day where the hospital staff was switching over from night mm. shift to day shift. Mm-hmm. So they kind of had us set up and just kept us comfortable. And was like, we're going to get to you as soon as the new nurses come in. And within an hour, everything started to snowball. It just went downhill. Um, oh my God. And I, I remember the nurse came in to take his blood. And I looked down at him. And while he was doing it, he just started kind of taking these like big gulps of air. And I looked at her. I'm like, why is he breathing like that? And I remember she looked at me and she goes, I don't like that. And then within 30 seconds, there was five or six people in the room. Wow. And uh, they had put a mask over his face to help him breathe. Um, suddenly there was just a social worker next to me. Sorry, I'm starting to get emotional. I was called. I, I was there. I mean, it, Sam, it was about as awful a thing as anyone. I mean, it was definitely okay. the worst moment of our lives. Like I was called. I was brought there very, very quickly. We were taken from the emergency room upstairs. Uh, and suddenly we were in a room with tons of people and, and they were heart specialists. Suddenly a heart specialist was appearing and they were talking to us and everything happened very quickly. There was a social worker explaining it to us all. And, um, it was horrible. It was, it was harrowing. It was horrible. It was so incredibly sad. He was our son. We loved him. And, uh, he was tiny. I remember going through the hospital and seeing the, you know, him being wheeled upstairs and seeing this tiny baby on this big bed and everybody looking at us, just knowing that this wasn't good. And when, and what happened was we stood there in the doorway and watched as all of these doctors worked to save his life. And then they called it and he died. And it was, it was horrible. It was devastating. So Caden, uh, uh, Caden died from Kawasaki disease, which is a condition that's very rare very, very rare in kids his age. The symptoms usually express later. When, when a child 
at Caden's age has it, that it's usually diagnosed post-mortem. Okay. And I also want to, I'm sorry I'm interrupting you, but because of the age of COVID, that is one of the manifestations in small children is Kawasaki's right. disease has sort of mm-hmm. come to the fore in a way people never mm-hmm. heard of it yeah. before. But this well, happened long before the pandemic, COVID. right? Yeah. What year yeah. is this? This was 2017. Okay. I just want to place it in time for people. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So, but all that time, I mean, it's so rare that during his four days at Cedars, one of the best hospitals in the country, no doctor ever said, oh, let's, let's rule out Kawasaki disease. Mm. They all thought he had some sort of virus and they were just waiting for yeah. the fever to go away so he could mm. come home. And um, I'm moving through this part of it because it's so sad. And, and, and what happened afterward, it just was incredibly sad. You know, we called this mom uh, from the hospital. I to be honest, I don't remember if we called or a social worker called, but I remember she got the information and she hung up. And she oh. kind of disappeared. And afterward, that was something that was really, I really truly believe that the hospital did do everything that they could do. I, I knew that it wasn't because of the drug use. And we were left with this sort of like, wow, like we had this experience of being able to take care of this baby for this period of time, like while he was on this planet. And there really was like, not that I wanted to, but there was no one to blame. You know, it was just like, this is what happened. And I want to say this, we had this memorial service for him and it was, you know, everybody in our lives and our community showed up for it. And, um, and then later, you know, um, his mom decided that she wanted to have a funeral for him. And it was, you know, we were planning, we were, we were thinking that we would cremate him and we would give her half the ashes, but because we hadn't adopted him, you know, she had the rights to do all that. And then what ended up happening was this really remarkable thing, which was that we did everything that we could to help her have this funeral. Yeah. In fact, Jesse was the minister at the funeral. <gasps> wow. um, we, wow. we brought all of our pictures to the funeral home. Uh, we brought these posters that we had, had blown up of him, the large pictures of him that we had blown up for our memorial service. And we ended up coming to his funeral that his mom had. And, um, we met all of her other children. Oh my uh, gosh. Was, and then it was at the funeral that the social worker told us that the last DNA question that we had about him and his father, he wasn't the father. Mm-hmm. So we were told at the funeral that we would have been able to adopt him. Oh and, my gosh. and when we were in the parking lot afterward, I remember we were just all standing there crying, saying goodbye to each other. And his mom took us aside and she told us, she said, listen, I know that you were his dad's. I know now, now I'm going to cry. Oh I my know, God, I'm crying too. <laughs> I, I, she said, I know that he was better off with you and that you took care of him in a way that I couldn't. Wow. And we all just stood there crying. And, um, and, and it was, this was this story of this boy, you know, this yeah. was his story. She was his mom. She is his mom, yeah. you know, and, and it was, we, it and was you incredibly are his dad. sad. <laughs> yeah. It was incredibly yeah. sad. Yeah. Um, but I'm grateful for it too. I woke up the next day to a text message from her and she said, in a way, I wish that you two could have been my parents. Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. That's oh right. And, uh, it, it feels like this angel came to earth and he had a seven and a half month contract, you know, wow. an eight month contract. And we were blessed enough to help him fulfill that contract. And part of the deal was 
he must have had some great karma because all he knew was love. Wow. Yeah. And I, th- I like to think that he, he was so loved that his little heart just burst from all <laughs> the love that he, that he felt. And, yeah. um, you know, it's those certain things where it's like, it was completely out of our hands, but in a way he had a perfect life yeah. because all he knew was love. That's all he knew. He just was like, like the kid was because of, um, the community that I was the minister of, it was an LGBTQ community. A lot of the members of the community were not going to have kids of their own. So he was sort of like the community's baby. My wow. mom, my sister, our family, Chris's mom, everyone just loved this kid so much. And to have a life, even though it wasn't as long as I would have liked to it have been. Um, but I'm also glad like if Kawasaki was it for him, that it happened now at that age then and instead of eight years old or 30 years old a lot of you know i i teach classes now and i help people through grief and kind of like grieving mindfully because we learn so much about it in this process and I, i i do think that there's beauty to be discovered in it um allowing yourself to love someone that deeply allowing your heart hard to open that much. And yeah. Chris always says that, you know, Caden cracked his heart open. And I, I think that's mm. a really accurate yeah. description. And I will say, I mean, Chris, I know you initially from our storytelling community in LA, where you've been a host and a, and a you know, wonderful supporter of all of us and a wonderful storyteller yourself. And I remember when that happened, everyone came around you guys. And, and we yeah. had those storytelling nights with the whole storytelling community also kind of circling love around yeah. you guys and um, in, in a horrible moment, but in a very positive way to try to support you and, and help you guys. I that. will for, I, uh, I will forever be grateful for all of the support, so much support, so much love. Like it's, it's through our whole story, even now, like the boys that we have now, I, I just, I really feel like people are rooting for us. And, and I felt like Caden's life affected so many people. So many people saw him. So many people saw us bring him home. So many people were like, wow, look at this family. Look at these guys. And this is cool. I don't understand it. I don't know how this happened. I've never seen this before, or maybe I have, but not that much. And it's really great. And, and then a tragedy that can happen to anyone happened. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just something that I had no idea I would ever, ever, ever be involved in. And I'm just glad that I'm really glad that I love my husband, you know, and, well, and, and that's, if, this is a, this is an experience. And I, I know, unfortunately, people that this has happened to that can tear a relationship apart. That's what uh-huh. I, the, yeah. the heart specialists, yep. as they were turning off the monitors and we were walking out of the room and mm-hmm. uh, and Caden had passed away moments before the his heart doctor turned and said to Jesse and I take good care of each other. Couples often divorce. Wow. And I knew she said that because she really liked us. She was looking at us and she was like, oh, I like these yeah. guys. And, and, and she wanted us, she wanted us to take care of each other. Right. Right. I, one thing I will say, cause I know we're going to wrap up right now for this segment of it is that, you know, it's wild to think now, Jesse always says like Caden had a hand in the boys that we have now. That is, that's the first part of the story right. for sure. Right. Um, but a part that, you know, I think of every single day of my life. So. Right. Right. 
Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing this with me. I'm sure it's not easy and I I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I hope I'm not dropping you off a cliff by stopping here. No, 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 no. I mean, it's, it's, it's all good. And we obviously feel very passionate about all of this. So, right. Well, I know we have to break and I don't want to cheat the next part of the story. Of course. Okay. Thank you, Sam. We'll figure it out. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Take care. Be safe. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining me today for this intimate conversation with my good friends, Chris and Jesse. Please stay with us for part two to hear the hard-won happy ending to their story. And this is a quick reminder to send in your questions for our very special season two finale with therapist Savannah Sandfield, who specializes in the struggles of infertility, adoption, and more. Deadline is November 11th, 1111. So send your questions to IVFUpodcast at gmail.com, or you can DM me on Instagram at IVFUpodcast. The IVFU Podcast is produced by me, Sam Shaper, and Emmeline Summerton. Audio mastered by Logan Heftel. Thanks to Chris Benelli for the late night Pro Tools parties, George Strayton for marriage, and Gary Scott for greasing the wheels. IVFU is a production of Inside Voices Media. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at IVFU Podcast. You can download our theme song, Freakin' Love, at IVFUPodcast.com. And we'd love for you to review us on Apple Podcasts and spread the word to anyone who might be helped by these conversations. You can also be a huge help by leaving us a tip of any size, whatever you can afford, on Venmo and PayPal.me at IVFUPodcast. Thank you. And thanks for listening. I'm happy we shared this time together because it's all about being a family. And I